The economy is crumbling, they say it's had its day. The workers are all rumbling, revolution's on the way, but I could never be a Marxist, it goes against the grain. And before you call me past it, give me a chance to explain. You say, come up to Port Newell, he went with Danny Baker. So you silly disco songs of Rini Melody Baker, I'm singing down the dunker. Welcome to Radical, a podcast about the radical aspects of politics, music and football. I'm your host, Kas Mudde. My guest today is Catherine Kramer. Kathy is a professor of political science and the Natalie H. Holton Chair of Letters and Science at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. Her work focuses on the way people in the United States make sense of politics and their place in it. In 2016, she published The Politics of Resentment. Rural Consciousness in Wisconsin and the Rise of Scott Walker with the University of Chicago Press. This excellent book won several awards and has become one of the key texts for people to help understand the Trump phenomenon in the U.S. Welcome to the podcast, Kathy. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor and a pleasure. It's a pleasure for me too. Now, what was the first sports team you ever supported? The first sports team I ever supported was the Grafton High School football team. Because my dad was the coach and my dad coached football his entire career. And when I was four, we moved to Grafton, Wisconsin. So for the time I was four, I sat in the bleachers, as my mom calls it, facing backwards with my legs hanging under the bleachers, reading a book (laughs) while the football was going on behind me. But that is my first memory. But it's still impressive because she sat at the bleachers in Wisconsin in the fall. And it must have been pretty, pretty cold. Oh, you get used to it. The second, what is your favorite political song? I think We Shall Overcome. It's probably the one that comes into my head most often. I mean, it's a beautiful melody and just very powerful words. So that's probably my favorite. And finally, what's your favorite political book? Well, I think it changes over time, but right now it's the latest book by George Packer, The Last Best Hope, in which he talks about kind of four different, what I think of as worldviews within the U.S. political culture. And I found it very helpful for understanding the divisions within both of the political parties right now. It's just, I think, a very empathetic treatment of a variety of perspectives that are in tension with each other right now in the United States. So let's talk about another book that does that, which is your latest book. Why did you start that book project? I started it because I was interested in social class identity at the time. So I wanted to understand more about how social class identity mattered for the way people make sense of politics. So, you know, it became a study of the rural versus urban divide in Wisconsin. But that wasn't uh, what got me out in the field. That wasn't what I was looking for. So you were really led by your research rather than by your research question necessarily. Yeah, right. I mean, the research question I went in with evolved over time. And I think it was because my methods were so oriented to listening that I became aware of a phenomenon I didn't know existed naively and wasn't looking for it. Right. And so you actually say this explicitly that you have a method of listening. What is that method? Well, these days I call it analytic listening, and Paul Pearson at Berkeley has given me that label. 
And I think it's a good fit because basically what it is, is finding ways to invite myself into the conversations of other people so that I can listen to the way they make sense of politics and the rest of their life in the midst of social interaction with the people that they normally spend time with and ideally in the places that they normally spend time. So it's listening kind of in the wild. My colleague, Deb Roy at MIT, that's another label he gives it. But also I use the analytic aspect because basically it's listening to comparing across people or across groups so that I can recognize patterns in the way certain types of people talk about certain types of things. So it's both the listening and the ability to compare across multiple cases. Right. And so it has kind of elements of participatory observation, focus groups and interviewing, but yeah. in a very original mix. Well, thanks. I have found it much more useful than focus groups because being able to listen to the way people who already know each other interact and in the spaces that they choose to spend time gives me so much information about who they think they are and how they see themselves in the world and what they value, I guess. So the title of the book is The Politics of Resentment. Can you explain what you mean by that? Resentment about what? Sure. Resentment basically about being left out, not getting one's fair share. And I chose resentment intentionally rather than anger, because to me, resentment is this kind of simmering emotion, a negative emotion, but a simmering sense of not, you know, not getting what you deserve. And that can become anger at times, but it's sort of a, just a low, at a low boil, <laughs> a constant Right. Yeah. Another key term is rural consciousness. What do you mean by rural consciousness? Well, my dear friend Joe Sauce suggested this term to me way back, almost a decade ago now, I think, building on the group consciousness literature. So the group consciousness literature, many folks will know, like late 70s, early 80s, Arthur Miller and colleagues coined this term of group consciousness when people not only have a social identity, but they recognize the political content of that. They recognize that they're part of a group that's systematically disadvantaged and that they attribute that disadvantage to the political realm, government, not just individual behavior or characteristics. And rural consciousness then is a kind of group consciousness in which people identify as a member of a rural community. They don't necessarily say, I am a rural person, but they have a sense that of a place like this or like people around here, I'm one of the types of people like live in places like this. So it's that rural identity combined with a sense of distributive injustice or in other, term, or other words, the sense of not getting what you deserve, not getting your fair share. Now, there seems to be a bit of an overlap with the sense of authenticity and like the American heartland. As you said, yeah. they don't necessarily define themselves as rural, as in rural versus urban. Yeah. But the sense of place is very important. But isn't there also an element of that this is the real America? Yeah, which is partly why I love that George Packer so much. So he talks about one of these four perspectives that he talks about is real America, this sense in which, and I don't know if this is his wording, but like white, Christian, heartland America is the true America. And then if we could just get back to respecting that, that many of our problems would be solved. 
And this sense of being like good, hardworking Americans is very much a part of this rural consciousness. And I hope, I assume, I know we are going to get into talking about the racial components of this in a moment, but it is a sense of what America is all about. Right. I think that's a very important part of what's going on here and people having this sense of, you know, wait a minute, we're the real America and we're playing by the rules of the game, as, as Arlie Hochschild likes to put it, right? We're playing by the rules of the game and something has gone amiss because it used to be the case that people like us had a very comfortable life and were able to do just fine, if not get ahead. And something has gone wrong because that's no longer the case. And I guess the term people like us is the one that sets off a lot of red flags for a lot of scholars of American politics in general, I would yeah. say. Yeah. But it is the issue of race, which you do address. But Wisconsin is overall a pretty white state where the yeah. African-American population is almost exclusively urban. I'm in Georgia, where a sizable portion of the African-American population is rural. Yeah. And so when I read the book, I thought, mm, is that the rural consciousness? Is it really yeah. that a white farmer in Wisconsin has the same consciousness as a black farmer in Georgia or yeah. as a white farmer in Georgia? Yeah, Ooh, that's a great point. I mean, it's definitely specific to the upper Midwest. And this doesn't describe the rural consciousness of all people in the United States, much less even in Wisconsin, right? So when I do in my work, I'm trying to understand this pattern that seemed pretty widespread across the state. But there are many people in rural communities, even in Wisconsin, who don't to kind of convey this type of perspective, right? But you're absolutely right. It's pretty specific to white folks. And I would say, it shows up in similar forms in many other states in the country, but I think I'm safest in talking about the upper Midwest when describing this phenomenon. But you're right. I mean, it's it's very different from farmers of color, even in, um, and I shouldn't say even just farmers, but I'm thinking of primarily farmers of color in the upper Midwest, but also just rural residents in the upper Midwest, of which you're, it's not comparable to Georgia, but there are, you know, there are still sizable numbers of people even in a segregated state like Wisconsin. So there's yeah. another, perhaps a mismatch in that resentment is mainly an anti-sentiment, whereas yeah. consciousness is mainly a pro-sentiment. Yeah. How do the two relate? Oh, great question. In my mind, a lot of this is about political elites and that a group consciousness even though the way we define it within political science is about distributive injustice in the sense of not getting your fair share and that there being like some blame that should be given to the political system for that, that a group identity often is not a negative sentiment, right? Isn't about feeling as though your group is aggrieved. For many people, a group identity is a very positive part of who we are, right? And so the link going from a group identity to a sense that my group has been wronged and part of the blame is attributable to the political system. A lot of that, I think, can be attributed to the packages that people are sold, the frames that people are sold by political leaders in terms of whom or what is to blame for your perception that you are being left behind and not getting your fair share. 
So the other thing that I thought about while reading the book was the original populist movement of the mid-19th century, and particularly kind of prairie populism, which was kind of a Midwestern phenomenon, and where you had what some scholars like Matt Lyons and Chip Burlett have called producerism, this idea that we are the producers, we are the hardworking Americans, and we're being squeezed by the parasitic elites in the Northeast or the urban, and the lazy parasites at the bottom, which in an American context has always been very racialized. Do you see comparisons there, similarities? I do in that, when framed in that way, definitely. And yet the populism in a way was different in the sense that the populism seems so much more authoritarian now and progressive in a way back then. And maybe it's mainly in the implications of or how it gets wielded in a way, because back then the targets were often big business, right? Whereas now the targets are not, they're often racial minorities, right? Or other cultures or ethnic groups abroad, whether it be China or Muslims, for example. And so that seems different to me. And also I I wonder These days, I think a lot about the nature of our economy currently. And and it's just, there are some parallels in terms of the inequality that was part of the context, economic inequality. And yet the nature of the economy is so different now, where the size of the financial sector, I mean, there was difference in the number of people who were involved in agriculture in these smaller communities, right? It's just drastically different now. It's just so, so much smaller now. And the number of people involved in manufacturing, like where the GDP is coming from, is just so drastically different that that background to the populism seems very different to me. Now, in terms of period, your fieldwork was in an interesting period. It was kind of just after the heydays of the Tea Party and just before the rise of Trump. And it is interesting because... The title of your book says, And the Rise of Scott Walker, whereas I think the vast majority of people that have read your book see it in the context of the rise of Trump. Was Scott Walker and the rise of Scott Walker the same as the rise of Donald Trump, or are there some important differences there? Yeah, so yes to both, but I'll briefly explain how I saw Scott Walker relating to this rural consciousness and then Trump to help explain kind of the similarities that I see, but also the differences. So so I started my fieldwork in 2007, just before the recession was really setting in, the Great Recession. And Scott Walker at the time was not really on the broader public radar. He was executive of Milwaukee County at the time. So a prominent politician in the state, but not widely known. And he ran for governor in 2010. And he made use of these sentiments, the sentiment among rural people that they just weren't getting their fair share of not only resources, but also of attention attention, political attention, and just general respect. You know, part of what people were saying to me is the people making the decisions that affect our lives, not only are they not giving us what we need, but they don't even like us, right? They look down at us and they think we're uneducated and unsophisticated and racist and so forth. And Scott Walker acknowledged that in some very subtle ways and some more explicit ways, which included conveying that the public employees in the state were the haves and everyone else was the have-nots. 
And by making that argument, he was basically holding up Madison in particular, but also Milwaukee, the other main metro area in the state, and saying, it's basically us real Wisconsinites amongst people who live in those two places. And public employees are centered in Madison, the state capital. And in many of the small towns throughout the state, there are public employees, certainly this public school teachers and people who work in the municipality, government offices, but often their salaries on average are higher than the private employees in these smaller communities. And so that argument of the public employees being the haves was very meaningful to people outside of the Madison and Milwaukee metropolitan areas. So he made that argument in various ways on the campaign trail. And then once he got into office, he's famous for legislation that he introduced right away, which undercut public employee unions and made public employees pay in much more to their pensions and health benefits. He's a very different politician in demeanor-wise and in the, the messages that they can't conveyed, but they were similar in the sense they were both basically saying to certain segments of the population, you are right to be so upset. You are right to be so upset. You do deserve more. You are good, hardworking Wisconsinites, Americans, and what you deserve is going to people who don't deserve it as much as you do. And for Scott Walker, he was holding up public employees. But Donald Trump was saying people in the city, certainly, but more explicitly, racial minorities, China, uppity women, Muslims, urban elites, all those folks are to blame for the challenges that you're facing. Right. So different arguments, but similar and Scott Walker was also famously very closely tied to the Koch brothers. And so that type of mobilization, which again was a bit more the Tea Party mobilization, yeah. which was more subtle on race very and sold more this small government, this kind of Reagan-esque anti-government America, yeah. which under Trump almost disappeared, I guess. Um, right. And yet I assume that when you were there, you already saw race being much more prominent than mm -hmm. in the official discourse. So the, the step from Scott Walker to Trump might not have been that big for your average rural Wisconsin. No, I think that's probably right. Now, the other thing that Trump did, of course, was it completely changed your book. It was a book about yeah. Wisconsin with broader right. lessons, perhaps, but right. by the rise of Trump, and I would say the dearth of studies of, let's say, broader, the far right in the US, this became a key book and you became a key commentator. How has that influenced you as a scholar? How did you deal with that media attention? Well, it's influenced me a lot. Yeah, it honestly changed my life overnight. I would say that from election day to the day after, my career has been very different. And I think one way it changed me was to recognize the kind of impact that we can have as scholars and how important it is to write in a way that if we want our knowledge to extend beyond political science, beyond academia, it's important to write in a way that is accessible to a broad public audience. And thankfully, my dear friend and colleague, Larry Bartels, strongly encouraged me while I was writing my manuscript to basically rewrite it, rewrite it in a way that could be read by a very broad audience. And I am I'm just so deeply grateful to him. There was a point where I said to myself, I need to write this like I talk as opposed to the way I think it should appear in, say, in the APSR. Because I, I used an APSR article I had published as kind of the nugget and expanded the book around that. And so it taught me that 
it's important to write in a way that's broadly accessible. Also, I mean, the 2016 election, aside from my own experience of this book, has taught me so much about race and the way it is entwined in public opinion in our perspectives. I mean, I knew literature back and forth on implicit racial bias, right? I understood that race is in there even when it's not being talked about. But I understand that at such a different level now and also understand the duty that I have as a white scholar to be both respectful of the people whom I'm spending time with, say, for example, people in rural Wisconsin, who I am quite honestly, very empathetic toward and see them as decent human beings whom I want to do my very best to convey how they're looking at the world. I have a responsibility to do that and be respectful about it. At the same time, I have a responsibility to continually ask myself how I'm seeing the world as a white scholar. And there's a great book coming out by this young early career scholar named Nina Yancey that's about white perspectives around a school secession effort in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, that taught me as much about public opinion as it did about white scholarship, white political science scholarship. And so I'm I'm just more mindful of that because of the 2016 election. But one other part of your question was sort of how did I deal with the media attention? And I think one thing I, I recognized early on was this isn't about me. It's not about me and my scholarship. Instead, there's a reason that I'm alive and wrote this book at the time that I did with the personality that I have. And I recognize that as as much as I possibly could, every time someone asked me to speak about my book or a reporter called me to explain what I had learned, to try to answer those requests, because there's a need, there's just a deep need for us to understand what is going on in rural parts of the United States, rural parts of the upper Midwest in particular, you know, which captures many of our swing states, to convey that in the most dignified way possible so that we can approach something like understanding as opposed to hate. Now, given that empathy, do you have any ideas how we can overcome this resentment? I do. And they're all very expensive, meaning they they all take time, which is the most expensive thing in monetary value, but also just the scarcest resource, right? So it takes a lot of time to put oneself out there and listen, whether you're a scholar or a politician or a policymaker. But I think part of what's going on is people don't feel heard. It's not just the upper Midwest and not just rural folks in the upper Midwest, right? I think part of the resentment is just very widespread. And by saying that, I also don't mean to equate the sense of not being heard among, say, for example, Black Americans who have never been heard, he might argue, and white Americans who are recognizing over the past few decades, wait a minute, we're not being heard like we used to be. They're not necessarily equivalent. But that fundamental brokenness in the U.S. political system of so many people feeling as though the system has zero concern for their lives, one of the ways of overcoming it is to somehow build back in time with one another. And redistribution would help a lot, too. So many people feel as though they are stretched so thin and so economically challenged 
that the best response to them seems to be to hunker down and protect themselves against people who are trying to take away what little they have. Just out of curiosity, there is an insane amount of money going into subsidies into the rural communities in the U.S., at the same time, if you look at it in more detail, we also know that an insane part of that goes to agribusiness rather than the small farmers. Is that an issue that ever comes up, actually, when you talk to people? Yeah, for sure. For sure. There's tension within many rural communities between people who are involved in agribusiness and people who aren't. And, and a perception that among people who still are owners of farms, so not just working in agribusiness, but actually own their land, that they're among the very, very wealthiest in a community, right? Even if the owners themselves might not feel that way, because that's not cash, right? Like they would have to sell their property in order to have access to that wealth. But there's a perception that the government basically gives handouts, right, to people involved in agriculture. So, it, yeah, it does come up. I mean, it did, it did definitely come up in my field work. So, finally, what is the greatest misunderstanding about rural America? Maybe that rural America is all of a kind, right? Which is partly, you know, I'm guilty of conveying that just in my remarks, just in this podcast, right? Like, there's lots of variation that the sentiments that I'm describing is a generalization, is sort of a broad pattern. But even within, as we were just talking about, even within rural communities, there's tensions over who's deserving and who should get what and the allocation of resources and respect. I don't know if that's the greatest, but it is one of, one of the greatest. Thank you very much for coming yeah. on the show, Kathy. Oh, it's my pleasure, Cass. Thank you for the great questions and the conversation. If you want to know more about Katherine Kramer, you can check out her page at the departmental website of the University of Wisconsin at Madison, or you can follow her on Twitter at, at Kathy J. Kramer. And you should also really buy her book, The Politics of Resentment, Rural Consciousness in Wisconsin, and the Rise of Scott Walker at or through your independent bookstore. This was another episode of Radical, the podcast on the radical aspects of music, politics, and sports hosted by me, Kas Mudde. The music is from the Godets with their classic song, Karl Marx supported Millwall. If you want to know more about Radical, visit our website at www.radicalpodcast.com. Radical spelled R-A-D-I-K-A-A-L. And if you like the podcast, please rate and subscribe. Also, please share it with friends and on social media. Thank you for listening. The economy is crumbling. They say it's at its day. The workers are all rumbling. Revolution's on the way. But I could never be a Marxist. It goes against the grain. And before you call me past it, give me a chance to explain. You say, come up to Paul Newell. He went with Danny Baker. See you silly disco songs and really melody maker. I'm seeing that a dunk out, playing with his beard. No wonder that that's Captain Tau turned out a little weird.